kneel before Zod. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Rich and Famous, released October 9th, 1981. It was written by Gerald Ayers, based on a play by John Van Druten, directed by George Cukor, and released by United Artists. In 1940, John Van Druten's play Old Acquaintance premiered, it was later adapted into a feature film of the same name by Warner Brothers, starring Betty Davis, Miriam Hopkins, and John Loder. In 1980, actress Jacqueline Bissett and producer William Allen formed a joint production company to develop material for Bissett to appear in. Though it is not officially considered a remake of Old Acquaintance by the filmmakers, Allen bought the remake rights to avoid legal problems. Once a draft of the script came together, Jacqueline Bissett offered to surrender her salary to get the film made if Allen could secure the rest of the funding. Robert Mulligan was attached as director and actually started shooting, but an actor strike ended his involvement with the project. By the time the strike ended, legendary director George Cukor was brought in to replace Mulligan. At 81 years of age, Cukor was the oldest working director at the time. Cukor started the job by reshooting everything Mulligan had filmed in his mere four days on set. The film cost a little over $10 million, but only made $7 million back and was considered a flop. Why on earth would you spend $10 million on this? I don't know. And on what? Yeah, yeah. Nothing, how did this cost $10 million and the Prowler cost 500000 to a million? Screenwriter Gerald Ayers won the Writers Guild Award for Best Adapted Comedy. He did? <laughs> but I thought we weren't even sure if it was adopted from anything. Adapted. Adapted from anything. <laughs> <laughs> we start at Smith College, 1959, Under Snow. Two friends Liz and Mary, played by Jacqueline Bissett and Candace Bergen, sneak out of the dorms to a taxi in the middle of the night. And in keeping with the full moon high logic, they're both near 40 as they play Oh my god. I was <laughs> college so, students. Was so confused because I didn't realize this was gonna like again cover their whole lives. Yeah. But it's your it's your favorite. It's slice of life. Oh Yay. God. Based on a play. Your slice favorite. of life based on a play, your favorite. They debate whether or not to bring along a cherished teddy bear. Liz drops off her friend at the station where she's on her way to wed someone named Doug. It sounds like this Doug character dated Liz first, but has since proposed to Mary. But there doesn't seem to be any hard feelings between them at the moment. When the train arrives, Doug is already on it and disembarks to kiss his fiancée. Liz watches. Before she leaves to follow Doug to California, Mary gifts Liz her teddy bear. You owe me one. The train pulls away and we cut ten years forward to Liz giving a speech on the campus of UCLA in 1969. She's introduced as the author of National Writers Award winner Night Song. Mary arrives hand-in-hand hand with her young daughter, Debbie, just in time to catch the speech. For some reason, in her speech, she confesses that she doesn't do enough work as a feminist activist. And when someone in the audience asks, um, why? She says, I, I'm too busy writing, but I also kind of have writer's block, and I can't, I'm not writing, and I'm not a good feminist. And then she goes off on a tangent about her love of old men and then yeah. refuses to apologize for it. And the audience of exclusively women stand and applaud. It's like, what What happened here, people? 
what was this speech about? Why did you invite her here? How did she write a book? <laughs> We're eight minutes in and I already know I will not understand this movie. The words feel like they're in the wrong order. I feel like I'm having a stroke reading it. <laughs> Later, Mary gives Liz a tour of her California beach house. A mustachioed Doug in swim trunks approaches Ocean Wet from the beach. Mary lets Liz know that they're throwing her a party later and inviting all their celebrity friends. There are a lot of cameos here from figures in the literary world, and we'll cover those at the end. Oh, goody. She introduces Liz to a man named Kent, but she doesn't say much to him, and he's irrelevant to the story. Doug invites Liz on a walk, and they disappear from the party together. For the whole rest of the party, yes. apparently. Yeah. They talk on the beach, and you just have to watch it to see what they say because I don't get it. The gist is that she had an older guy that was her boyfriend, and they split up, but she's not over him, and her therapist says that she won't write until she is over him. She also mentions offhand that you never recover from your first love. Insanely rudely, Liz and Doug don't return to the party in her honor until all of the guests have left. Mary points out that these people will assume the worst about a married man disappearing with a girl for hours like that. Instead of apologizing, Doug says, lol, I'm not changing. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> okay, then move. That night, Mary forgives her husband for flirting with her best friend for the entire party that she threw for Liz. Liz thanks her for the party she skipped out on and then complains that all the good things happened to Mary, as though Mary didn't cause them to happen. Handsome husband. A beautiful little girl. And you know how to sew. And it's like, go learn how to sew, idiot. Right? <laughs> Defensively, Mary announces that rich people are just as sad as everyone else, though statistically, they are not. <laughs> she grabs a stack of papers from a closet to read to Liz about Kent's problems, which she has apparently written down, and eventually confesses that these words are a book that she's been writing that compiles all the private complaints of her celebrity friends into a novel. Incidentally, this loose bundle of paper is how I imagine the script for the movie, <laughs> since the pages could be arranged in any order and make as much sense. Mary admits that her book isn't anywhere near as good as Liz's work, but asks if she can read it in full. It looks like it's like 500 pages, and she's going to sit and just read the whole thing to her right now. Liz chugs whiskey and gin while she listens. We only hear a few words, but enough to tell it's a badly written book. Hours pass, and the sun is rising over the beach as she finishes the story. Okay. This is where I... Okay. I'm so confused as soon as she starts reading this thing. It sounds terrible. Like, it sounds like really, really, really bad. And I assume that we're going to come out of this moment and she's going to be like, trying. she's going to be torn as to how to tell her friend her work is shit without making her friend feel bad. Right. But that is not That's what not happens. That's not the point. Yeah. <laughs> no. Despite the workmanship, the story itself seems to speak to Liz, and she is instantly jealous of her friend's accomplishment instead of being supportive, especially when she learns the story came together in just eight months and she flies off the handle. Eight months only in the evenings. Yeah, but it's also like eight months is a decently long time to mm -hmm. put a novel together. Like, if you don't have a full-time day job, like, yeah. okay, eight months in the afternoon, that's fine. But, like, she's jealous of something that's clearly bad. Like, I, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be potentially a commercial success because of the, right. the topic. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, salacious things are going to sell regardless of how well they're written. But, like, why is she jealous of this garbage? Yeah, this isn't what she wanted to write. They both shout a lot, but none of the words mean anything. Eventually, Liz leaves the room to throw up, and Mary turns to Doug. She liked my Mary trusts her husband to escort her best friend to the airport the next day. On her way home, Liz drinks and flirts with the passenger beside her. He tells her that his wife died, and he hasn't found the heart to take off the ring. Any kids? 
Oh, thank God for that. They have sex on the lavatory as the plane lands, and when they exit, the man is greeted by his wife and children in the airport. Of course he is. It's so strange because the whole airplane uh, sex scene in the bathroom yeah. was very reminiscent of watching The Fifth Element. Where, okay, where yeah. Chris Tucker is like with a stewardess and it's like mimicking what the plane is like the actions of the plane are supposed to be like yeah. enhancing what's going on but I've also never heard or I've never been on a plane where every they tell you all the sounds yeah that sound is normal and everything is fine <laughs> super <laughs> suspicious it's like that sound is just the landing gear locking into place I assure you it's normal it's like I've I would be totally panicked if they kept coming. Do not in. worry about the fire you see on the wing. <laughs> what? It, it is merely Saint Elmo. That's just a landing fire. <laughs> John McClane is on the runway, lighting fire. <laughs> Liz sits down for lunch with her publisher, Jules Levi, to pitch her best friend Mary's book. We cut six years forward to a mansion in Beverly Hills. Mary is getting interviewed by Dick Cavett on a television and says people think she's dumb because of her southern drawl. I'm proud to be from Atlanta. I read Gone with the Wind twice a year. Coincidentally, this film's director, George Cukor, was the original director of the 1939 film adaptation of Gone with the Wind until Clark Gable had him fired and replaced with Victor Fleming. The way Cavett describes Mary's books, there are five now, and they sound like long-form TMZ articles, cashing in on the friendships in the Malibu area, a modern-day Luella Parsons. Next, Cavett interviews her friend Kent about the portrayal of a character based on him, and he denies the claim that he is actively suing Mary. He laments that she had to move from Malibu after some mysterious person set her car on fire there. Doug is bored by the broadcast and moves to make himself a drink. Even though they seem rich, Mary gives Doug shit about being laid off from his job and demands he accompany her to New York for an appearance on the Merv Griffin show. Later, Doug is trying to initiate sex with her, but Mary is distracted by the idea of a suitable title for her next book. Home cooking. You like it? He tells her, out of nowhere, what Liz said about never recovering from your first love. She leaves bed to write down the idea before it fades from her, and by the time she gets back, Doug has already taken care of himself. But when we see her write on the chalkboard in the next room, it already says home cooking on it, so she didn't just come up with that title. We cut to Mary on the Merv Griffin show. Backstage, Doug is bored to be here and walks out of the studio mid-interview. He takes a taxi to Liz's apartment, where she is burning a chicken. Apparently she was expecting his arrival, but not so early. She pours them both drinks. I keep thinking Doug looks like a mustachioed cure delay. He tells Liz that he wants to move to New York for keeps, and they can see more of each other. He doesn't care how Mary entertains herself. The doorbell rings, and Mary is finally here. She's mad at Doug for ditching her, but cheers up a bit when she notices that Liz has kept her teddy bear all these years. Doug decides to leave because Mary continues to give him shit and he suddenly has a letter opener to her neck, but apparently as a joke. It's a scene from one of your books, Mary Noel. It ain't stupid, it's just trash. Trash? Trash. You said trash? Trash! Successful trash! You're goddamn right! You put together enough trash, you get some major garbage! After he leaves, Mary sits down to angrily play the piano while smoke starts billowing from the oven in the kitchen. Liz somehow finds Doug in a nearby park, and he makes one final pass at her. He tells her he's moving to Texas, and she should come with him. He wants to marry her, and she turns him down. Mary arrives late to the rejected proposal, and Doug runs away to avoid having to speak with her. I have to imagine Candace Bergen's direction for this was, just keep saying Doug in the most annoying fucking voice you can manage. <laughs> Doug! 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 <laughs> 
Doug! Liz informs her that Doug is moving to Texas and the marriage is over. Did he say anything more? He said goodbye. Goodbye? This scene is an excellent showcase of Candace Bergen's limitations as an actress. What am I gonna do? You're gonna miss him. Terribly. Oh no! <laughs> I don't want to! I hate to be unhappy! Oh, you are making me unhappy and I hate you for it! I hate you, Doug! I hate you! I am not exaggerating the way she says any of that line. That's exactly how she delivers it. That was, I deserve an award for that. Your Oscar for mimicking terrible uh, yeah. performance. What am I gonna do? You're gonna miss him. Terribly. Oh no! I don't want to! I hate to be unhappy! Oh! You are making me unhappy and I'm gonna hate you for it! I'm gonna hate you, Doug! I hate you! Yeah, her accent in this movie is just... So... It's awful. It's oh, real bad. It's really awful. And it, I mean, I think part of it is that I'm very familiar with her voice, and this is not it. And there's some right. people that are so ingrained in your memory that you're like, well, you know, as you know, an, an American accent or an English accent or whatever it is that you're just like, I can't hear you yeah. this other accent. It makes she no sense. She does a lot of voice work, too, professionally. And she just, like... She cannot stay in a consistent Southern accent here either. It is yeah. all over the map. Mary says that she will focus on her career in his absence, but from what we've seen, that doesn't seem possible. That's like me saying I'm going to spend more time working on this podcast. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> what? What do you mean more? <laughs> we cut to New York City, 1981. Finally, people are supposed to look 40, like they are. Liz arrives late to a meeting of the team deciding this year's best piece of American fiction. As a former winner, she has been recruited to help judge this year's candidates. Of course, Liz is a little biased in favor of her friend Mary's book, Home Cooking. Well, it's it's like, okay, she was a former winner, but we assume for her only book that she published, yeah. which was 11 years ago. Yeah, it doesn't matter as long as you've won one. It's kind of like how the Cannes Film Festival gives, like, bring back filmmakers from mm. yesteryear to judge the new crop of course liz is a little biased in favor of her friend mary's book home cooking she announces her prejudice in the form of a disclaimer but her fellow judges don't care because one of them's like oh i'm super biased too <laughs> i don't give a shit one of those books is about me so it's fine well it's also weird that she's even up for this kind of award because i feel like her fame in writing isn't because she's a good writer but this book is though that's what th they make the point too that they're like wow like she's she just writes trash and then she wrote this like how did this even come from her because she's known for garbage and then suddenly well, this came out and everyone's calling it the greatest American and in theory novel. it's because it's based off of what liz said right exactly that one germ of an idea was enough to, to make her a good writer yeah we cut to Liz checking into the Algonquin Hotel and receiving many packages of books. The man at the front desk also directs her attention to a young man named Christopher Adams here to meet with her. So the Algonquin Hotel is a real hotel in New York, and it was very crowded, so they had to kind of rebuild it on the MGM lot for the purposes of this production. But for the hotel hallways, 
they built these hotel hallway sets and then they ended up reusing them. It, it was at the Sunset Gower Studios mm-hmm. and they reused them in Ghostbusters. So oh. when you see the hallways, they're the same hallways that Lewis Tully and Dana Barrett are walking up and down. Art Deco, very nice. She's told that there's someone waiting for her. And so she approaches some random guy and says, are you Chris Adams? And he says, no, I'm not. And then Chris Adams says, I'm Chris Adams. He's like, what was the purpose of, of her? What is this? Why? Because why I think they wanted us to be like, like, oh, Chris Adams is just some random guy. And then when a young man stands okay. up behind him, that, that we're supposed to be like, ooh, this could be her new boyfriend because he's a sexy man instead of being an old man. <laughs> Adams is a reporter from Rolling Stone whose appointment she has evidently forgotten, but he helps her carry the huge pile of books to her room. When they get there, she orders some scotch from room service. She offers Chris some weed because he's from Rolling Stone magazine and she wants to look cool, I think. She's intimidated by his youth and asks his age. He's 22, meaning he might have been born that night she escorted Mary to the train station. She's very condescending to the readership of his magazine. The utterances of those who can't speak, written by those who cannot write, for those who cannot read. He admits that he suggested the article on her as a fan of her work. He says a lot of flattering stuff about her books, and she seems more agreeable to the interview. There's a knock at the door, and Liz assumes it's her scotch, but it's Debbie, Mary's daughter, played by Meg Ryan in her first feature film role. She's here hiding from her mother, who's mad about Debbie's new activist boyfriend. There's another knock at the door, and Liz assumes again that this must be her scotch, because she doesn't know this is a play-slash-movie, and it's obviously someone else she doesn't want to see. Namely, Mary. Mary shows no interest in Mr. Adams until she learns he's with the press, but when Liz specifies it's Rolling Stone, she goes back to not caring. Another knock at the door, and she bets it's the scotch again, right? Wrong. It's Debbie's boyfriend, Ginger Trinidad. <laughs> when Mary shows him some attitude, he accuses her of being racist. Maybe you don't like Puerto Ricans, is that it? <sighs> it has nothing to do with being Puerto Rican. Do you guys recall the last time we saw someone knock on a door in a film based on a play and then accuse the person inside of being racist? Yes. What was that? Only when I left. That's right. What's the matter with you, man? You don't like a Spanish people? Who said anything about Spanish people? You're the one I don't like. Mary starts bugging Liz for info on how the award deliberations are going. Mary invites Liz to a party later and says to bring someone, and kind of leans toward the guy on her couch like, this guy's good. Mary leaves and Liz gets weird about the interview. Chris Adams says to relax and she pretends like he's trying to fuck her so she leaves. (laughs) She's just like, what, are you going to make me relax? And he's like, what? Oh, I was just saying you should relax. And she's like, are you going to relax me with your body and he's like all right well here's my number (laughs) just call me if you want to later you weird person out on the street a young man 18 years old he says sees liz exit her hotel and asks for directions to cartier then they just follow each other around for a while and then they come back to her hotel room and have sex usually this is what happens with a guy in a movie where a young girl that's way out of his league follows him around and then has sex with him for no reason what is this <laughs> i don't know what's what happening is yeah. this? i i thought it was chris i was like is that chris is he like nope. being weird but it's like no it doesn't look like him but then like they keep smiling at each other and they keep talking and, and, I like, thought and also gonna... why does she go to the store with him yeah i thought he was gonna end up being some sort of con artist who's randomly going to cartier and being like hey show me the way and yeah and then there's like this weird moment they go into the store and the saleswoman is like is this your address and, and he's like no and then she like looks at Liz like Liz is doing something. I don't understand this scene at all. I, I mean, I'm assuming he's a prostitute. That she's paying in like it, fixing the jewelry? 
Well, I get. I guess that's like a means of covering the transaction? Question mark. Oh, yeah. is that what's happening? I don't know. <laughs> I don't oh. know what's happening. Because he says he has a bracelet and it's too big and it could practically be a necklace. And they go into Cartier together, and then she like pays to have the bracelet fixed, and then they go back to her room and fuck. I don't know. But it's like, it's weird. how did he clock her as someone who has money? to fuck a random guy off the street and then why would he get paid in this bizarre manner of like i have a bracelet that i want to wear on my arm instead of my head <laughs> I, don't I don't get it someone explain it to me because i'm the idiot here well and and so far the only thing that we know about her is that she prefers older men right and so f- and this guy is half her age yeah and he, <laughs> i thought he was gay when he first shows up yeah he he has a he set off my gaydar a little bit Am I allowed to have gaydar? I don't know. What? You don't like Puerto Ricans? <laughs> or you do like That's Puerto Ricans? It's funny because after he says, I know what kind of people you like. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> James Coco's like, fuck off. James Coco. Mm-hmm. He was the gay friend that yeah. oh, was being accused okay. of being racist. Sorry. My brain always goes to mean girls, but it's not James Coco. It's uh, Glenn Coco. Glenn Coco. <laughs> <laughs> Glenn Coco? for you, Glenn Coco. You go, Glenn Coco. We cut right from the sex to the interview with Chris Adams. She's a boring person, so the interview is boring. See, but- again, this is why I thought it was Chris. Yeah. I thought I thought the guy that she picked up was Chris. Like, and he suddenly just- she's talking to him again. Yeah, yeah I was like, I-, I kept going back and forth. I kept going, it's not him, but then he's here. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand why they did this. But they flirt a lot while they get a boring interview done. They head up to a cabin in snow together, and now they seem to be a romantic item. They're, like, holding hands, and they sleep together. Liz and Chris arrive together at Mary's party. Alone in a room together, Liz admits to Mary that she's in love with this man, half her age, but then she catches Chris flirting with Debbie and is instantly jealous. Later, they lay in bed together and talk. Uh, when they're at the party, um, I had the because you had mentioned literary people and i was on the lookout for one in particular and i was like oh well there he is (laughs) because he's unmistakable yeah you're talking about bradbury yeah yeah i was like i wonder when he's gonna show up oh there he is (laughs) (laughs) later they lay in bed together and talk chris works his way up to a proposal to the girl he met this week and she makes a joke about it so he gets grumpy and leaves she realizes immediately she's made a terrible mistake we cut to her visiting Mary at her home at the Waldorf Astoria. Mary says Doug is in town and assumes that he wants to reconcile their marriage. Oh, goody. That's a very big assumption. Yeah. Mary mistakes her bad mood for a hint that she has lost the book prize, but eventually Liz admits that she fumbled a marriage proposal from the man she loves. Mary says not to let age dissuade her, and Liz spends the rest of the day trying to reach Chris. Eventually, she gets a call from Debbie that Ginger, her boyfriend, was arrested, and Chris is trying to talk the judge into releasing the boy. He's not an attorney. He's a reporter with the Rolling Stone. Why did you call Chris to come and get your boyfriend out of jail? Well, they were trying to find Liz, and they thought that maybe Liz was with Chris, and so that's that's why they accidentally got a hold of Chris. But But, why would Chris go? Yeah. I just, I I feel like everybody's in their own world in this, in this whole thing. Like Mary is just concerned about things in the Mary sphere and just like has no regard for what Liz is going through right now. And same with Liz. And same with Liz. They're terrible friends to each other. Same with the daughter and the same with like, even, even Chris seems to be just like in, in just Chris land. Like I don't get it. (laughs) Later, Mary spots Liz walking around and offers her a ride. 
Liz admits that Mary has tied for the book prize. Mary is furious and complains that Liz didn't have to share the prize when she won. Liz says that Mary never would have started writing if it wasn't to try and outdo her. If I had to become a glider pilot, you'd be behind the wheel of a 747 by now. They don't really have wheels. It's a yoke. <laughs> <laughs> Shows what you know about being an airline pilot. Wait, no, I meant like of... the wheels on the bottom the of the plane. The landing gear be, coming down. That's perfectly you'd normal. Be behind them? <laughs> what? Flying coach? Fuck you. Just running along the runway. Oh, that makes more sense. <laughs> These two should have stopped being friends a long time ago. Liz finally gets out of the car and hails a taxi. Liz meets with Chris for lunch. Liz is furious with him for spending platonic time with Debbie last night and gives him a taste of the jealous arguments that would have made up their entire three-day marriage. Christ, you know, I didn't even want to tell you about this. Tell me about what? Something I shouldn't know? No, I just knew you'd get carried away. Never been calmer. <laughs> no one has ever honestly said never been calmer. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, the only people who say never been calmer are fucking furious. Calmer than you are. Yeah, waving the fucking gun around? Calmer than you are. Will you just take it easy? She brings up his proposal, and he tells her to drop it. Your many proposals, your many insistence. Stop! You said no. We don't have to beat it to death. Debbie shows up, but quickly determines she is not welcome, and leaves after thanking Chris. Chris mentions that he has hired Debbie as an assistant, and Liz says she thinks it's a good idea. Later, Mary comes up to Liz's room and they argue more. Turns out, Doug was here to tell Mary that he is remarrying in Texas. Not to another person named Mary, but to a different woman. <laughs> so he's not remarrying with an E, he's remarrying with an A. Mary mentions that Doug has been sober in Texas, but that she bought him a drink and soiled his sobriety on purpose to pry secrets loose because she's a monster. Turns out, the juiciest secret she got is that before he went to Texas, Doug proposed to Liz, and Liz said no because she's such a good friend. Right. Naturally, Mary is furious. Yep. <laughs> Mary is mostly mad that Doug liked her friend at all, but seems especially pissed off that Liz turned down the proposal for some reason, like her husband wasn't good enough for her friend. There's a really bad edit in this argument. Oh, uh, yeah. It's like the, line get, the word gets cut in half. Yeah, it's like, doesn't that just complete the picture? Chris is giving her a job with my blessings. Doesn't that just complete the picture? And it just completely cuts the silence yeah. on Liz's side. It was like Ironically Whoa. not completing the picture. Yeah, I was like, what what happened? <laughs> Have I mentioned I hate both of these women? <laughs> Liz shuts Mary up by mentioning that her would-be fiance has left her for Debbie. But for the record, that hasn't happened yet. All he did was hire her, and she could be trying to win him back right now, but she's not. Mary tries to take her bear back and they fight over it tearing it in half and dumping sawdust all over the floor. Oh, oh. takes her, like, teddy bear. <laughs> takes her bear back. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> what movie did you watch? Like, Jesus, <laughs> I missed A much better scene. movie than what you guys saw. <laughs> and rips it in half. <laughs> and sawdust comes out. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> Once the bear is down and Liz starts crying, Mary flips out and 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 looks like horrified like they've just killed a person yeah. together and she wants to get out of the scene of this crime. She doesn't say anything. She just like looks terrified. She I think look she's scared of Liz's reaction to the bear being destroyed because she thinks that her friend is like broken. It, it, it was just a strange choice. It's very weird. Yeah. A lot of strange choices here. Later, Mary mopes around her award party, and understandably, Liz does not show up. 
Mary hops in a cab and drives out to Liz's cabin in the woods. The two friends apologize to each other for their co-shittiness, and Liz suggests they take a year off and fuck Greek fishermen. These two celebrated authors perform a rare automatic fail of the Bechdel test by admitting to each other that they only pursued writing to meet guys, but now they don't care about writing and just want to meet guys. That's literally what this scene is about. They're like, I didn't even want to write. I just wanted to have sex with dudes, and they would think I was interesting if I wrote books. And they're like, me too. And they just that's the never moral. really understood guys, mm, because guys the would have fucked the them film. without yeah. having to read anything. Yeah, all you have to do is <laughs> fix their bracelets, apparently. <laughs> the dudes are always like, fix my bracelet and I'll have sex with you. My Cartier, my Cartier bracelets. <laughs> I don't understand. Well, that makes more sense than dude read a book and then wanted to fuck yeah. me. <laughs> As the clock strikes midnight on New Year's, Liz asks for a New Year's kiss. After all these years, are you going to tell me that there's something strange about you? It's New Year's Eve. I want the press of human flesh. And you're the only flesh around. What is going on in this scene? And then they don't kiss. Is is she supposed to be gay or bi? Because we have not hinted at that at all. No, over the course of the so. entire film. I don't think so. I think it's literally just I She just wants to be kissed by literally anything with human meat on its face. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine the scene with two straight guys? Dude, just kiss me. I just wanted to fucking get kissed tonight. Can you kiss me? What? No, I can't do that. Sorry. You know, you didn't have to bring up our New Year's Eve last year. <laughs> I just wanted you to know. Why do you keep coming back? Anyway. Yeah. I don't get it. I, like, it seems like at the last moment, this is supposed to be that she's either a lesbian or bi. I don't think I don't think that this is meant to be sexual in any way. I think they're just talking about feeling close to somebody again and 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 filling like the holes in their hearts and their lives liz like, has been filling her holes this entire movie <laughs> like she just has sex with any random person off the street no but i think i think that this last moment is them just trying to like connect on an emotional level and that's it why that's would it. you want to connect with this person who you I, viscerally hate i do not and know. have hated for two decades i'm just trying to explain the nonsense yeah I don't know why boomers are like, I'm going to stay best friends with my fucking mortal enemy for my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> like, what is your problem? Just stop talking to that person. You don't have to call people back. <laughs> it's a nightmare. Anyway, that's uh, rich and famous for you. Thumbs down, please. Yeah. I don't know if this is the director's fault or if it's a bad play. I haven't seen Old Acquaintance. I have not seen it either, but if it was celebrated enough to either warrant uh, a remake or not celebrated enough to warrant a remake yeah i mean it had betty davis in it so you know it's at least like top dollar cast but who knows very strange but yeah thumbs down for me you guys all said thumbs down or correct yeah it's a thumbs down i i like i mentioned jokingly earlier slice of life because this is slice yeah. of life with nothing happening, like it's... Does she ever write a second book? Does Liz ever write a second book? We don't know. Like, so literally, all her character did so far was write one book in the first 10 minutes of the movie, mm -hmm. and then she spends the rest of the book just mad at her friend. Yeah. For for being a more successful writer without having any talent, or... But she also has no talent because she's not writing anything. Right. It's not like she's a better writer. She doesn't write anything. Yeah, I mean, we, we're only assuming that she's not writing other books, although 
she she continues to have a publisher. Yeah. Because with uh uh when they get their photograph taken, she goes, "These are my ladies." It's like, oh, is she still writing? I don't know because they don't talk about. Yeah. But it's also weird that like, they the the implication of the whole story is that she is a better writer than the Candace Bergen character, but they well, both won the best fictional book of the year award well it's the highest honor that either of them gets i don't i don't know if well i think liz would argue that that she got that the liz highest is honor the, because she didn't have to share it with someone well one yeah i would say that but also that liz doesn't write trash she wrote she writes you know obviously f- feminist empowering uh, material because like that's the whole point that she was being celebrated at ucla yeah but then but she, she said, that "I she, don't do." Yeah, I don't do work. this. I just wrote this. Yeah. yeah, it's just weird. I don't. I don't really get it. I don't get the draw of this story to anyone to make it, other than that. I think Jacqueline Bissett saw it as an opportunity to play half of a two-hander film with mm. another celebrated actress, and yeah. that we would both be presumably this was intended as like an Oscar bait situation. It's two best friends. They're authors it's high society literary world and they literally the president of the academy is in this movie we'll get to her name in the credits and so i feel like they definitely thought that this was like an awards automatic but that makes go-to. me think that they're really stupid because none of this makes any sense and no. how could you think that this was like profound when it's literally just there's nothing nonsense. to it there's no story here letterboxed jess what are you thinking uh, it's pretty low. I have it at 119 out of 140. It is below Deadly Blessing and above Night School. All right, Richard. Uh, I have it at 93, uh, which puts it below Dead and Buried, but above Modern Romance. Whoa. <laughs> Another stab at Patrick's heart. I think you do things like that to just upset me. <laughs> Any, anytime you put something directly above Modern Romance, it's like... <laughs> It's like an axe chopping into our friendship. <laughs> At least I, I didn't I didn't care much for modern romance, but it's a well made it, it written film. It makes sense relative to this one. Yeah. <laughs> Rich and Famous actually ranks 131st. Uh, it goes right under Tuck Everlasting and just above Scream. That's so, the nineteen eighty one Scream. Our director here was George Cukor. His first directing credit was 51 years earlier in 1930. He directed Little Women, David Copperfield, and Romeo and Juliet in the 1930s. He was fired off Gone with the Wind and somehow also gets an uncredited director credit on Victor Fleming's other 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. So maybe he got fired off of both films? I'm not sure. He directed Gaslight, Adam's Rib, Pat and Mike, A Star is Born, and My Fair Lady, for which he finally won his directing Oscar after four nominations. Rich and Famous was his final directing credit, of course. The writer here was John Van Druten for the play. He has a contributing writer credit on Gone with the Wind and 1940s Pride and Prejudice. He also wrote the screenplay for Gaslight and the play adapted into Cabaret before this. Presumably, this was greenlit on the strength of that. The writer here, Gerald Ayers, previously wrote Foxes and produced The Last Detail. The music here was from Georges Delarue, who was the composer of Jules and Jim, Contempt, Day of the Jackal, and Day of the Dolphin, 
Both days. Jackal and Dolphin. <laughs> Weird weekend. He has a composer <laughs> credit on Willie and Phil, either because of original work or because of reused Jules and Jim music. He also composed True Confessions recently for us, and later Silkwood, Platoon, Biloxi Blues, Twins, Steel Magnolias, and Joe vs. the Volcano, with three times as many Meg Ryans as this film has. Cinematographer Donald Peterman. Before this, he lit King of the Mountain. He's back for Flashdance, Splash, Cocoon, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, Point Break, Adam's Family Values, Get Shorty, Men in Black, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Editor John F. Burnett also cut The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, not to be confused with The Sun is a Deadly Laser, The Owl and the Pussycat, The Sunshine Boys, Murder by Death, the Goodbye Girl, Grease, and And Justice for All. So far on the show, we've seen his work editing Can't Stop the Music and Death Hunt, and he's back next season with Grease 2, and later Leviathan, Leap of Faith, and 10 episodes of Baywatch Nights. Jacqueline Bissett played Liz Hamilton. She's best known for Bullet, or Murder on the Orient Express. We've seen her so far in When Time Ran Out, and she's also Miss Goodthighs in the 1967 Casino Royale. Candace Bergen played Mary Noelle Blake, her parents were Edgar and Francis Bergen. She shows up next season in Gandhi, and later she's Sal 9000 in 2010, the year we make contact. As we mentioned earlier in the season, she played Mary in Mary and Tim, the remake of Tim. She's probably best known for playing the lead on Murphy Brown. Long-running series and might have even gotten a reboot at some point. I don't remember. Um, Yeah, I think it did come back. Yeah. David Selby played Doug Blake. He was Quentin Collins and the opening voiceover for the original Dark Shadows series. We saw him first as Quentin in Night of Dark Shadows, and later he came back for Raise the Titanic. He's also Richard Channing in 209 Falcon Crests, Dean Buckley in D3 The Mighty Ducks, and Gage in The Social Network. Hart Bachner played Chris Adams. He's best known for playing epic asshole Ellis in Die Hard. We saw him last as a different asshole in Terror Train. He's also Ethan in Supergirl and Rod in Breaking Away. Stephen Hill played Jules Levi. We saw him last as Jill Clayburgh's dad in It's My Turn, and then Lieutenant Jacobs in Eyewitness. He's also D.A. Adam Schiff in 229 episodes of Law and Order, spelled the same as the Adam Schiff from Congress, but unrelated. Meg Ryan played Debbie, age 18. You're telling me that the character is not related to a real real life congressman. Correct. Okay, good to know. Meg Ryan played Debbie, age 18. This was her first film. Later, she shows up in Top Gun, Armed and Dangerous, Inner Space, When Harry Met Sally, and then Joe vs. the Volcano, Sleepless in Seattle, and You've Got Mail with Tom Hanks for a trilogy. Candace Bergen plays her mom again in a remake of The Women for 2008. The original film was also directed by George Cukor. Matt Latanzi played The Boy-Jim. That's the character who needed his watch fixed mm-hmm. or his bracelet fixed last year he played young danny mcguire in the xanadu flashback where he met olivia newton john on set and the two were later married he shows up as brad in greece 2 and trent in roxanne daniel feraldo played ginger trinidad more recently he's father rodrigo in mayans mc nicole eggert played debbie age eight this was her first feature film appearance. She played herself in an episode of the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, and later Jamie Powell in 104 Charles in Charges, and Summer Quinn in 44 episodes of Baywatch. Alan Warnick played Desk Clerk. He shows up in Chinatown and Chinatown 2, as well as Mother Jugs and Speed. We saw him last as Steve in How to Beat the High Cost of Living. Anne Risley, or Risley, played Max's wife. She's an SNL alum who we last saw as a bank customer trying to cash a check at the start of Honky Tonk Freeway earlier this season. She was also Pam in Simon and a UFO follower in Stardust Memories last season. 
Faye Kanan was Professor Fields. She was the president at the time of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, who we last saw at the Oscar ceremony episode. She was also the sister-in-law of screenwriter-slash-actress Ruth Gordon. Marsha Hunt played Malibu Party Guest. She's Mary Bennett in the 1940 Pride and Prejudice, Katie Mallory in Bride by Mistake, and Anne Martin in 1948's Raw Deal. Not to be confused with the Arnold Schwarzenegger film. Christopher Isherwood played Malibu Party Guest. He's probably best known for Goodbye to Berlin, which was adapted into the musical Cabaret. He also wrote the novel, more recently adapted into A Single Man. Paula Miller played Malibu Party Guest. She is the wife of Baltimore Bullet and Rough Cut director Robert Ellis Miller. Sorry, her name was Paula? P-O-L-A, Paula Miller, yeah. Paul Morrissey played another Malibu Party Guest. He is a product of Andy Warhol's The Factory and the director of Flesh for Frankenstein, Blood for Dracula, and the 1978 Hound of the Baskervilles. Roger Vadim, or Vadim, I think it's Vadim, played Malibu Party Guest. He's the writer and director of Barbarella, and we haven't covered his 1980 or 81 releases because they are generally pornographic in nature. He also wrote 1959's Dangerous Liaisons. Frances Bergen played another literary party guest. We saw her last as Mrs. Laudner in American Gigolo, and before that in MacGyver episode Slow Death. I can use some help. I can help. Diana, don't be foolish. You have absolutely no experience. You'll only be a hindrance. Her first feature film appearance was as Madeline Astor in 1953's Titanic. She is the mother of Candace Bergen and the wife of Edgar Bergen. She appears with her daughter in a movie called The Lion Roars Again in 1975 and later in Hollywood Wives, based on the Jackie Collins novel. Ray Bradbury plays literary party guest. This is at the party that Candace Bergen throws herself. He wrote the stories adapted into It Came From Outer Space and The Beast From 20,000 Fathoms in 1953. He also wrote the screenplay for 53's Moby Dick and the novel Fahrenheit 451 and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Frank de Folita played another literary party guest. He wrote ZPG and the novels adapted into Audrey Rose and The Entity. Nina Folk plays another literary party guest. She's got a Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination for her part in 1955's Executive Suite. She's also Julia Ross in My Name is Julia Ross, Milo Robert in An American in Paris, Bithia in The Ten Commandments, and Helena Glabras in Spartacus. She was also married for some time to Inside the Actor Studio host James Lipton. Elizabeth Forsyth Haley played another literary party guest. She wrote the novel adapted into celebrated miniseries A Woman of Independent Means. She was also a consultant on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Oliver Haley is a literary party guest. He is the husband of Elizabeth, and he has lots of one-off TV writing credits. Randall Kleiser was another literary party guest. He's the director of Grease and The Boy in the Bubble. We've covered his film The Blue Lagoon on the show, and later he'll direct Flight of the Navigator. Gavin Lambert played another literary party guest. He wrote the novel adapted into Inside Daisy Clover and the screenplay to Avalanche. Michael Brandon played Max. He was the narrator for a lot of Thomas the Tank Engine stuff. We saw him last as Pete in A Change of Seasons. That's the guy that Shirley MacLaine is flirting with when Anthony Hopkins is flirting with Bo Derrick. Mm -hmm. He was also Senator Brandt in Captain America 1 and Sid's dad on Gallivant. Dick Cavett played himself. He's a talk show host who appears as himself in films like Annie Hall, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Forrest Gump, and Ghostbusters. How is Elvis and have you seen him lately? Is that is that Dick Cavett? Is is Dick Cavett even in Ghostbusters? Maybe he's not. I don't think he is, no. No, that's a different guy. That's Joe Franklin, I think. He's also one of the party guests for the Deo sequence in Beetlejuice. Merv Griffin plays Merv Griffin. He's a longtime talk show host and game show producer, most famously for shows like Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Those are all the credits I have for this one. It's like 
Oh, he, and he's the killer. He's he's also the elevator killer. Yeah. In the man with two brains. Yeah. As himself. <laughs> As himself the killer. Um. Yeah. Important credit for Merv. Also cool name. Uh. Oh. I, I guess I'll also bring up that he also plays himself on Hercules the animated series, <laughs> where he plays a griffin. <laughs> oh my Merv, god. Who hosts the show? That's so great. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's so funny. I love that. I love that for him. Anyway, that's Rich and Famous. If you have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Tattoo, which IMDb describes like so. Unbalanced tattoo artist Carl Kinski grows obsessed with Maddie, a model he meets when he's hired for a photo shoot. As Carl's obsession grows, he determines that Maddie should bear his mark forever. Oh no. We leave you now with a trailer for Tattoo. This is the Bruce Stern one, isn't it? Yeah. Oh god. It's another incel adventure from Bruce Stern. Hooray! Yeah. Here we go. Down through the ages. It has been worn by men and women, scholars and superstars, courtesans and kings. It is the mystic symbol of fascination and fear, seduction, sensuality, passion and power. It is art, it is flesh, it is the mark. 20th Century Fox and Joseph E. Levine present a story of obsession, possession, love, and terror. How did you know where to find me? Why do you call it the mark? met anyone that does what you do before. Put your head down on the pillow. Open your robe. Every great love leaves its mark. Tattoo. For mature audiences only, rated R.